right, well today we are back in the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to be in chapter 16 of Luke's Gospel, so if you have a Bible or you have a Bible app, go ahead and go there. After today's sermon, we will be spending eight more weeks in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, That's it, just eight more weeks, and we'll be finished with this series on the Gospel of Luke, because then it is going to be Christmas season. Christmas season, and we're going to be doing a, a short series on uh, the Advent, talking about Christmas and discussing that, and so I'm excited about that series, looking forward to it, if we get to do that together, Lord willing. It's hard to believe that we're thinking about Christmas already, huh? This week I was in Walmart, and the Garden Center had, has already undergone its annual transformation from the garden center to Christmas decor central, right? You have Christmas trees, Christmas tree lights, uh, these giant blow-up snow globes you put in your yard. Anybody have those in their yard? Uh, we, don't, we don't even have a yard big enough for that. And, and I, was, I was seeing all these Christmas decorations, and I'm like, it's not even Halloween yet. Like, come on, who, who is Christmas shopping? All right, so... Has anyone out here started their Christmas shopping yet? Yeah, we, we have a few people. We do, right? There are people who are, are like my sister, and they start their Christmas shopping super, super, super early. My, my sister probably finished her Christmas shopping for this year, the day after Christmas last year, right? So I really am hoping she doesn't give me fruitcake uh, this year for Christmas. And then you have people on the other end of the spectrum. And this tends to be dudes. Tends to be guys who, it's December 24th, it's Christmas Eve. And it's the first time they've stepped foot in a mall. Any any of you guys here? You're like the last minute shoppers? Yeah, we got some. We got some. (laughs) Have you ever been to the mall on Christmas Eve, like after 5 p.m.? Nothing but dudes swarming the place. (laughs) It's pretty funny. And when we... Now, here's here's the question. Who is more price conscious when they're shopping for Christmas? Is it the person who starts way early or the person who's doing all their Christmas shopping on December 24th? It's the person who starts way early, right? The person who starts way early has time to check different stores, check different prices, make sure they're getting the best deal, look for when the sales are going on. If it's your wife's birthday tomorrow and you don't have her anything, you're not going to be spending time price shopping to get the best deal. You just got to get something, right? This is why roses are so popular, guys to give to girls because it, it's really not that guys are that sweet it's just that guys are that forgetful right because uh, a guy wakes up sees on Facebook that it's his girlfriend's uh, birthday today he's like uh, 1-800-Flowers same day delivery right shipping bails him out and it's crazy how much people are willing to spend extra when there's a sense of urgency. Like on Amazon, if you spend $25, they'll pretty much give you free shipping, but it's going to take 10 days to get it here. 
But a dude's like, my anniversary's in two days. I need it here soon. So he's going to end up spending $60 on a $30 item just to get it overnight shipped. Right? It's crazy that we spend more money when there's a sense of urgency. It's because urgency changes things, especially the way that we use our money. Well, today we're talking about money because in Luke chapter 16, it's the topic that Jesus picks up. And, and this is not the first time that Jesus picked up on this topic through the book of Luke. Over and over and over again, Jesus is talking about how we use our possessions, how we use our money, how we view wealth. Because there are deep, deep spiritual implications to how we use our money. And specifically in Luke chapter 16, he, he, he's leading us to evaluate how we use our money in light of the time that we have. So, before we read this passage, let's just pause and let's uh, pray and ask God to lead us during this time examining His Word. Father, we, we come now to Your Word. And I pray that we would receive it as the gift that it is. Father, your word uh, confronts us and challenges us on so many levels and so many points. But Father, it is your word. It is authoritative for our life. You did not give it for us to assess and evaluate in light of our own reason and our own desires. But Father, you gave it to us so that we might obey and through our obedience might come to know you more and love you more. So Father, I pray that during our time today, as your word challenges us on how we use something that is very precious to us, our money, I pray that we would seek to obey you so that we come to know you more that you will lead us in wisdom to live a life that is filled with love for you and love for others. It is in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Look with me in Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. Jesus also said to his disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill, and write eighty. All right, well, this manager's job was to steward his master's money. He'd been given the authority, and he'd been given the responsibility to make all the financial decisions for this wealthy master of his. And his job was to steward the financial resources 
the business affairs of his master for the good, for the benefit of his master. That's what being a manager is all about. But instead of managing the master's possessions for the good of the master, he was wasting them away. He was squandering them. He wasn't getting his job done. So, as we expect, he gets fired. His owner says, nope, no longer can you be manager. And now that he's lost his job, he's in crisis. Okay, what's he going to do? His options that he sees are to take up manual labor, but he says, I'm too weak to do that. Or to beg, and he says, I'm too proud to beg. I'm ashamed to beg. I'm not going to go that low. So he comes up with this plan that he's going to reduce the debt of each of his master's debtors, and then they will receive him when he no longer has his management position. This is pretty clever, actually. See, he's still got all the logins and the passwords to the, to the corporate financial page. And he could have taken some money and ran, but he was wise enough to know that even if he took lots of money, that money would eventually run out. And if he had stolen the money, then he would have to live his life like a fugitive, always hiding, always on the run. With his work history, there's no way that he's going to get another job. There's no way someone is going to hire him. But if he significantly reduces someone's debt, and that person is going to befriend him, they're going to look out for him, give him a break, give him a place to stay when he's without a home. And so with the little time that he still has remaining, before he has to turn in his badge, turn in his keys, turn in his parking pass and leave, he's going to reduce the debt for as many of the people that owe his master money as he can. And there's urgency in his actions here. Because very soon, he's going to have nothing. He's losing his job. He probably lived with his master, or at least on property owned by his master, so he's losing his home. He's losing everything. And he only has a short window of time to make preparations for the future. So look in verse 8, and listen how the master responds. Verse 8 says, The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Hmm, that's odd. Why is it the master is commending this manager? Because what this manager is doing is actually reducing the amount of money that the master is going to get. This perplexed me, so I turned to some scholars who are much smarter than me. I turned and opened up some commentaries, and this is the first thing that I read. Let me quote it to you. It says, quote, This parable is notoriously difficult, end quote. Like, Thanks. That's really helpful. Appreciate that. At least I'm not alone here. Well, something for, for you and I to remember when we read Jesus' parables is that he tells these parables as stories to make a point. Often, it's just one point. You see, what we like to do when we come to parables is we like to look at the different characters, the different elements in the story, and, and see how they might represent someone or something. 
You know, how, how does this represent God? How does this represent His kingdom? How does this represent us or the Bible even? So, for instance, in the parable we looked at two weeks ago, the parable of the lost sheep, we can do that. We can say, oh, we're like the sheep. We wander off, we go astray. Jesus is like the shepherd who comes to rescue us. In the parable of the two sons, we can say, yeah, God is like that father who welcomes and honors his rebellious son back into his family. We can say, yes, the Pharisees are like that older brother that was too prideful and, and, and wanted the attention for himself and, and thought that he deserved the honor that his brother was getting. But if we try to do that here, we're going to run into all kinds of trouble. So with this parable, we need to ask, how is Jesus seeking to change attitudes and behaviors with this parable? What's the big idea that Jesus is trying to get across? What's the big picture? Well, notice that in verse 8, the master is not commenting on all of the manager's behavior. Right? He's simply commenting on the way the manager responded to his crisis by preparing for his future given the short amount of time that he had and the limited resources still available to him. So what the master is commenting and commending is how clever the manager was to think about this plan. The New Living Translation says it this way. It says, The rich man had to admire the dishonest rascal for being so shrewd. All right, did you see that? We're not to get the idea that this manager's plan is a godly plan. Far from it. He still doesn't care about using the authority he's been given for his master's good. He's still just looking out for himself. But you've got to admit that this plan was pretty clever. It was unethical, yes, but clever and witty, and it had a sense of street smart to it. You see, with limited time and expiring resources, the guy makes the most of it to better his future. With limited time and expiring resources, the guy makes the most of it to better his future. That's the point of the story that Jesus is going to launch from to connect it to our lives. So let's see where Jesus goes with this. Pick back up the last half of verse 8 and verse 9. It says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd, more clever, more wise in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Worldly people, here referred to as sons of the world, that is, people who do not live for God's kingdom, they can be very creative and clever people. They too are made in the image of God and have ingenuity. People know how to get the most of what they have. Right? Consider how wealth is created. Consider the business model of Facebook. Has anyone ever had to pay for an account, a personal account on Facebook? No. They give away their product, but yet it's worth millions of dollars. 
Guys who tinkered around with computers in their dad's garage end up becoming billionaires. Right? Those silly bands that kids wear all the time, like $4, you get a pack of 25. And, and, and those ideas, and, and several like them, make me think to myself oftentimes, why didn't I think of that? You know, why didn't I think of that? That was a pretty clever idea. That is pretty amazing how someone came up with an idea so simple, so cost-effective, and yet it resulted in great gains. The ingenuity and the creativity we see among people in our world to simply make a buck, to make a dollar, to make life more convenient and pleasurable, it's incredible. It really is incredible. But it's worth asking, what's the point? What does it all amount to? Because this life like the time that that manager had to prepare for his future, is short. This life is temporary. And if worldly people who are not concerned about what happens after this life, if they can be so clever, so creative to make gains for themselves in this temporary life, how much more ought the sons of light, that is, followers of Jesus who live with an eternal perspective, how much more ought we utilize today's resources to contribute to our life that is everlasting? See, here's the deal. Everyone should have a sense of the limited time that we have on this earth. Death is a reality. Like that manager who only had a short amount of time to prepare for his future, this life is short. How short? We don't know. It's different for each person, but you're not even guaranteed tomorrow. So make the most of today. The fact that life is short should give us a sense of urgency and should affect the way that we use our money and our possessions. We should use them to make the most of today in preparation for the future. See, people who believe that this life is all there is, they seek to make the most of it. There's a sense of urgency to get what they can while they can still enjoy it. But so often Christians lag behind in living with a sense of urgency. Christians seem to lag behind in living with this sense of seize the day. Why is that? Well, it's because there's a tendency to believe that as long as we know where we will spend eternity, as long as we've made our reservations in heaven, then what we do with the rest of our lives doesn't really matter. It's as if eternity allows us to relax the way we live here and now. And there's no urgency in the church. But Jesus is saying, no, no, no. What you do now does matter for your future. What you do now does matter for all eternity. 
Not just the decision you made to become a follower of Jesus, but how you follow Him for the rest of your life matters for eternity. So use your limited time, your expiring resources, to maximize your eternal future. Invest in people, invest in eternal things. Realizing that this life is short and eternity is ahead, the question Jesus is confronting us with is how are you using your money and possessions? How are you using your money and possessions in light of the future? What you do now matters for eternity. Look with me at verses 10 through 12. Luke 16, 10 through 12 say, One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, that is, the worldly money, material possessions we have, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in, what, in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Okay, so what you do with your current resources, your current relationships, and your current responsibilities will characterize what you do in the future. Verse 10 states this in a general way. And verses 11 and 12 apply it specifically to money and possession. So with verse 10, I'm going I'm to chase a thought here. Okay, this is going to be a sermon in a sermon. Right, and this one's going to be free for you guys. So the general principle is that what you are doing now with your current responsibilities, your current resources, your current relationships, is setting the tone for how you will behave in the future. This is true of church members. This is true of employees. This is true of students. This is true of political candidates. Past performance is the best indicator for future performance. So look for people's track records. That's where wisdom would lead us, is to look for a person's track record. But sometimes we allow ourselves to become blind to this truth when, when we're sympathetic towards someone or, or when we love someone. And I, I think that young ladies I see being the most vulnerable here at times. So, so ladies, especially young single ladies, if you desire the loyal commitment, the loyal love of a man, then hear this warning. Okay? If that guy is not faithful, responsible, courteous, and polite while dating... You have no reason to believe that he's going to be faithful, courteous, respectful when married. If he talks trashy about his ex, remember that at one time he was just as infatuated with his ex as he is with you now. Okay, if anything, guys are more courteous and more kind while dating because they're trying to win you. They're trying to woo you. So 
don't just watch how he treats you. Watch how he treats others. Watch how he treats his mom. Watch how he treats his sisters. Watch how he treats other people in the church. Watch how committed he is to his work responsibilities. His character today will be his character tomorrow. You never know what you're going to get at First Baptist Hiker, do you? Dating advice. All right. But you know, there's a tendency that I think we all have that when we get an opportunity, that when we are given responsibility, we are going to do such an incredible, marvelous, wonderful job. When we finally get that opportunity, when we finally get that responsibility that we're desiring, that we are longing for, we are going to do an unbelievably good job. For example, Scripture talks about how certain men are giving a desire to lead within the local church. Okay? I've been given that desire. I know some of you have been given that desire. And there's a temptation for these men who are filled with aspirations of doing great things for God to think about how they will lead, what they will teach, but to neglect their current responsibilities now. See, when Paul is telling the church who to choose as leaders, he doesn't just say, look for men who have great desires. He tells the church to look for men who have great character. Great character. Look for men who are already leading well with their current responsibilities in their home, in their current jobs. Look for men who are using their current resources well. Who are loving and leading in their current relationships well. And those are the men to appoint as leaders. See, the desire to be a good leader doesn't make anyone a good leader. The desire to be a good husband doesn't make anyone a good husband. The desire to be a good spouse a good child, a good student, a good employee, a good manager, a good leader doesn't make anyone any of those things. We need more than desire alone. See, the most pressing issue is not who do you desire to be. The most pressing issue is what are you doing now that reflects the image of who you want to become. It's not what do you desire to become, it's what are you doing now that reflects the image of who you want to become. How you are managing your current resources, your current responsibilities, your current relationships is shaping your future. Got it? All right, so now let's consider this principle in light of our finances, our wealth. Verse 12 says that what we have now belongs to another. It belongs to God. It's not really ours because we don't get to keep it forever. It's all temporary. But if we manage or steward well, the temporary stuff God has entrusted to you 
then he will give you lasting riches, stuff that's yours to keep forever. So God is watching how you use your money and your possessions. See, chances are that there's only one, maybe two people in this room that know how much money you make. Our income is very private. We keep it very secret. But it is my responsibility to tell you that the IRS is not the only one who's keeping you accountable. God also is keeping you accountable. He's watching what He's given you. And He's looking to see if you are trustworthy. Are you going to manage the stuff that He's given you for His good, or are you going to waste it away? What you do with your money and possessions reveals your treasure. And Jesus says that if you're not managing the temporary resources God has given you for His good and His kingdom, you have no reason to think that God is going to give you true, everlasting riches. Even if you desire those true and everlasting riches. Even if you believe that God is the one who is able to give you those true and everlasting riches. Let me say it a little bit stronger. What makes you think you are suited for heaven if you're not living for heaven today? What makes you think that you are geared to God's kingdom if you're not living for God's kingdom today? Verse 13 brings it all together. Jesus says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Don't think that you can live this life for yourself, and then you will spend eternity living for God. Jesus calls us to live for God's kingdom now. Now, is God opposed to money? Is money evil? No. No. I think we would all agree that having money is better than not having money. That money can make life more fun, more enjoyable, more comfortable. Money can give us opportunities. Money can provide influence. Money has a lot to offer. And that's why it becomes something that we so easily love. That we so easily treasure. And when we love money, it becomes very, very dangerous to us. Money is dangerous because it provides, or because it promises to provide us with things that only God can provide. Money can give us a false sense of security and protection. Money can make us feel powerful 
and in control. And this in turn lessens our dependence on God, and it attaches us to what is temporary. We end up in it, investing in things that don't last. And we waste away what God has given us to use as an opportunity to maximize our future. In Luke 9.25, Jesus has already asked, For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? See, Jesus knew that our attraction to money is so strong that it would easily pull us away from God and the life that we are meant to live. That our attraction to money is so strong that it would pull us away from true reality, that there is something more than just this life. This is why he said you cannot serve God and money. Jesus talked about money a lot. Jesus actually talked about money more than he talked about heaven and hell. That might be surprising to us, but he talks about it so much because he knew the danger of money, and he wanted to protect us. Money promises to make our lives better, but it ends up robbing us of true life. Money is a hard master. So in order for money not to rule us, we need something that is even better to give ourselves to. Something that is even better to give our loyalty to. Something that will offer us even more. Something that will give us greater delight and assure security. And what else is there than God himself? In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. It's the great reversal of the gospel. That Jesus, the Son of God, eternal Son of God, who lived in the riches and the pleasures of heaven, came to this broken earth. He walked among us lived a life full of trial, hardship, persecution, only to be betrayed and crucified on a cross where on that cross His perfect union with the Heavenly Father was ripped apart so that we might be forgiven. He took upon Himself our sins, the penalty that we owed so that we might be forgiven, so that we might have the opportunity to reconnect with God, to live with God in this life and forever. God is a generous God. And so the wisdom in this passage beckons us to realize that this life is short and what we do now matters for all eternity. So rather than invest in what is temporary, Use your current resources to invest in true riches. Well, how? How does one invest in true riches? It's by investing in God's kingdom with the resources you have. 
It's by giving as Christ has given. Our God is a generous God and He calls us to be like Him, to reflect Him. He made us in His image and that is the image that we are to be aspiring towards. You see, giving is the best safeguard for our hearts against the love of money. Giving is the best safeguard from attaching ourselves to what is temporary. Giving is this safeguard because it leads us to know the one who has given so much. It leads us to know the greatest giver, the one who offers more than money ever could. And so we are called to give because God has first given. And through our giving, we learn to enjoy God even more. We learn to become more dependent on Him than we are on money. And that causes us to realize how good God is. And we enjoy Him even more. Now, understand that God doesn't need us to give our money to Him. God doesn't need us to use our resources for his good. Acts 17.25 says that he is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all all mankind life and breath and everything. But God calls us to give because he's giving us an opportunity for a better life both here and forevermore. We are called to give because God has given. And by our giving, we learn to enjoy Him even more. So let's get get practical. What, What does this mean we are to do with our money? When you go home, when you look at your checkbook, when you look at your bank account, what does this mean you're to do? Many of us have heard sermons that when it comes to this point, basically concludes, give 10% to the church. Give 10% of what you earn before taxes to the church. Have you heard that? Well, this might come as a shock to you. Jesus doesn't give us any specifics on what to do with our money. You're not going to find them. There's no easy answers here. It would have been much easier if Jesus had just said, give 10% to your local church. But Jesus is calling us to something more. He's calling us to kingdom-minded ingenuity. To consider what are the limited resources that we have and the limited time that we have and how can we use those to maximize His kingdom. If you're committed to giving 10% to the church, that's great. But Jesus is asking you, what are you doing with the other 90%? How are you using it for the better of his kingdom? Let me outline three types of giving to help you evaluate how you give. Three general types of giving are there's compelled giving, there's committed giving, and then there's creative giving. Compelled giving, committed giving, and creative giving. If you shell out $20 when the pastor says, hey, support this ministry Let's buy some Gideon Bibles. Uh, there's a person in our church family that's in need. 
then you are a compelled giver. If you add a dollar to your grocery bill when you're in line and the, and the clerk says, hey, would you like to add a dollar to support St. Jude's research or Make-A-Wish Foundation, then you're a compelled giver. If you roll down the window when you're at an intersection and give five bucks to a guy who's there begging on the street corner, then you're a compelled giver. Compelled givers are aware of needs, they see the needs, and they want to respond to the needs. They're compelled to respond. And that's good. Then you have committed givers. If after every paycheck, you write a check, 10% to the church, you stick it in an envelope, and you put it in your Bible, in the front flap, and when you get to church, you put it in an offering plate, then you're a committed giver. If you always tip 20% to your waitress or waiter, regardless of how they served you, then you're a committed giver. And that's good. Then there's the creative giver. If while you're sitting at a restaurant, you're deciding what you're going to eat, you're looking at the different items, and you're looking at the different prices, and, and you think to yourself, hmm, if I get the $8 burger instead of the $20 steak, that's $12 that I could use to give to someone else. If you're in your kitchen and you're making a meal for your family and you think, hmm, I'm going to double this recipe so that I can go give it to a neighbor or a church member, then you're a creative giver. If you look for opportunities to support different ministries, if you look for how you can consume less so that you can give more, if you think about how you can use your material possessions to bless others, then you are a creative giver, and that's good. Kingdom-minded generosity includes all three, and that's better. Kingdom-minded generosity is characterized by giving that is both compelled by the needs that it sees is committed, and is also creative. That is giving that maximizes God's kingdom and our future benefit. So realizing that this life is short, and eternity is ahead, how are you using your money and your possessions? What would it look like for you to be more invested in God's kingdom? Jesus is calling us to use the temporary resources we have to advance God's everlasting kingdom and make the most of our future. The life we experience now is temporary. And what we do matters for all eternity. If you lose your awareness of those two factors, then life is going to end up passing you by you're going to end up wasting your life. So remember, this life is short. What you do matters for eternity. Let's pray. Father, the hope that you give us would be pointless if not for the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. 
Father, we thank you that there is an empty tomb. We thank you that there is evidence of a risen Savior. Because that gives us the firm assurance and hope that there is more to this life than what we see. And Father, your word has told us of an opportunity in which we can be invested in that kingdom by being generous with what you entrust us with. So Father, realizing that those of us who have been called to follow Jesus have been called not to live for ourselves, but to live for him who gave his life for us. Help us to realize that what we have all belongs to you. To receive it with appreciation and thanksgiving and then to think, how can we use what we have to maximize your kingdom? To advance your glory. And by doing so, come to know you even more and enjoy you even fuller. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.